And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. The race is on, and with F1's political landscape an agitated one and hints of breakaway threats, the rebranded Stake F1 team and launch season fast approaching, there's no lack of storylines even in the early days of January. But what's really happening with the FIA and F1, and is Audi maximising the investment in its team? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to answer those questions and more are Scott Mitchell-Mal and Mark Hughes. Well, Scott, you're speaking to us from a, a snowdrift in Sweden. <laughs> yeah, I've um, I've got uh, <clears throat> a very aggressive Scandinavian winter going on at the moment. I think uh, from what my um, uh, wife and her family were saying around Christmas, this we've had the the coldest or snowiest December that most people in Stockholm can remember for a very long time. And it seems to be uh, translating into the coldest January that um, anyone can remember for a very long time. We've got friends in the more 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 northerly in Sweden that have got like the temperatures in the minus 20s during the day. And if you go properly, properly north, it's like minus 43 or minus 44. So my minus 12 daytimes actually feels quite um, quite humid by comparison. <laughs> Well, who'd have thought it? More extreme weather events happening. I wonder what could be causing that. And talking of going more north, I know this doesn't quite work in terms of the way things align, but it's the north to me. Mark Hughes. Hello, yes. How's you? you if, if Scott's in trouble, up in the, mm. the grim north of England, you must be in even more. Well, it's just wet and muddy, really. Um, it's not a snowdrift. I was thinking of going out on my bike later on and I'd have to get all togged up, of course, and come back absolutely covered in mud, which is something of a... You know, an occupational hazard if you're a cyclist, um, an, an off-road cyclist around this part of the world. And um, I've got actually got a picture in my office of of me and my face absolutely just covered in mud. That was actually from a quad bike race about this time of year at Silverstone. And I I'd spent all of that race um, dicing with Tiff Nadell's quad bike. <laughs> And so every time I was behind them, all this crap was thrown up into my face. And it, you, you, you sort of get used to it, really, uh, riding a bike around here in, in, in this time of year. So, um, yeah, if we could do this um, visually, I, I'd maybe go out my bike first and then you could all laugh at how I looked. <laughs> when, you mentioned, um, when you mentioned getting on your bike... Mark, I, I have to admit, I'm immediately thinking of stories that you've said in the past mm. that involve you taking a bike home and, you know, jumping over all sorts of mm. stuff and having slightly comedic crashes mm -hmm. while animal animals watch on in bemusement as you lie there on the floor. That was one particular incident. Yes, yes, that did happen. Yeah. <laughs> I've just got an image of you a bit like, a, I don't know, a 50s Grand Prix driver or perhaps even earlier when they've mm -hmm. just got the goggles and then they're just, they're just covered in them. Yeah. So that, that's, the, that's the image, yeah, yeah. Um, that's the yeah. image I've got. So I can imagine you <laughs> in But with a, a slightly, slightly like one of those like slightly comedically oversized bikes, like, like very, still very much bicycle, kind of like classic bicycle, but maybe one that's got like 
like lean back a little bit like a, the Harley Davidson of bicycles. Mm. That kind of that kind of vibe. I can see you. Yeah, I can. I I think that's a bit of you, Mark. Especially hooning hooning around over jumps. I can definitely see Mark <laughs> having a bike with a bit of the air of the, the chopper about it. I think that's. Yeah, the, I think that's the, exactly. Uh, oh yeah, I love the chopper. <laughs> Fantastic. But I'm not spending a grand on a new one, especially as they've grown out of it now. Well, it? if anybody in, if if anybody involved in selling them is listening. <laughs> We're not gonna we're not gonna plea for freebies for Mark, but you know you never know if somebody uh, if somebody wants to spare one, it, it would have a grateful recipient. Yeah, Mark's not sponsored by that kind of bike, but he'd like to be. So if anyone's listening, <laughs> it's it's the shamelessness of it, just just terrible. How, see how we naturally sounded like we were just talking completely randomly. <laughs> then you get to the uh, the attempt to get something for 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 nothing. But let's get on to four wheels now, shall we, Mark? We'll start off with politics because i think this is going to be quite a big talking point this year it was already a talking point last year and there were some more shots fired late on in the general fia against the world battles on top was questioning mohammed ben saliem's argument that the coffers were basically empty when he succeeded him as president at the end of 2021 that tension's really ratcheting up there's even some paddock whispers about some in F1 wondering if it could operate better without the FIA being so directly involved. And obviously there's been talk of breakaways before. Is this hot air or do you think it's a serious possibility that could become a little bit more serious if this goes on? It's a possibility, but at this stage, I think not a probability. Um, I think at the root of it, both sides have got too much invested in the other. It would be very, very disruptive to untangle um, the, that that. Uh, partnership but you know the more spanners that Mohammed bin Salim puts into the spokes the, the the more he's he's pushing that balance into going over center into a tipping point um, which could lead to a breakaway ultimately but I think that that disruption that he's 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 sort of you know we the, the investigation with, with Toto Wolf and his wife and questioning whether the, the the value of, of Formula One commercially, for you know, for which he was slapped down, I think this is all just a reflection of his dissatisfaction with the FIA's role in F1, and it's very much about negotiation ahead of the next Concord Agreement, um, which to replace the current one, which expires at the end of twenty five. So it's 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 all preparing the ground for that in a way just to sort of remind everyone that the FIA is not just a passive partner in this, but, it, you know, you can actually, it has some power. Um, so just um, for the benefit of those listeners that aren't sh- sure about why there's this continuous uh, new new agreement, this new, new commercial agreement, when there's underlying that, the 100-year agreement, the infamous 100-year agreement, which was struck between the FIA and the, the then commercial rights holder Bernie Eccleston took a f- took effect from 2010 so in theory in um, 2110 that comes to an end that just means that during that time no one else can go to the FIA and bid for the rights because they've already been leased out from the FIA but the commerce the existing commercial rights holder can sell them during that time so they were granted to Eccleston who sold, who sold them to Liberty Liberty in turn could sell them to someone else but the FIA doesn't have the power to grant them until the 100-year deal runs out. So, But within those 100 years are the new contracted terms of the Concord Agreement, usually for five years, sometimes seven, sometimes three. So Bin Salayam inherited the current agreement, which was made with um, former President John Tott after Liberty first bought into F1, 
And in this agreement, the FIRA receives a substantial fee. It's believed to be about $100 million a year from Liberty. But as part of that agreement, it doesn't have the same regulatory powers it used to have. The regulations, for example, are largely now created by FOM, which is Liberty's F1 management group. And they're just rubber stamped and implemented by the FIA. So the FIA under the current agreement can no longer unilaterally just decide, oh, we're going to have smaller tires and wings next year, or we're changing the power unit formula, as used to be the case. So they've surrendered some power in exchange for a bigger fee. Bin Salim doesn't seem happy with either the level of power or the fee, and is clearly angling towards changing it in the FIA's favour for the next agreement. Um, Liberty seems quite sanguine about whether it needs the FIA, certainly in public, in theory, it could get its series sanctioned by a different governing body, but they couldn't call it F1. It looks upon the FIA almost as a, a contractor providing a service, you know, interpreting and imply the, applying the rules, providing the safety framework for the cars and the venues, etc. Whereas the FIA sees itself as far more than that. It's the owner of F1 and has simply leased out the commercial aspects as the governing body is obliged to do by law. So it owns F1, but the teams are contracted to Liberty. The TV deals are with Liberty. The circuit deals are with Liberty. Now, if there was a split, Liberty would lose the rights to that F1 name. And whether the TV companies and the circuits would balk at that and not continue, we, we can't know. But if the FIA was left with just the F1 name, the potential loss of $100 million a year income, and the obligation to lease out the commercial rights to someone else, it's not a very strong hands. Both would be damaged, I think, if in the event of a split. But the FIA probably more so, as it's more financially vulnerable. So I think pragmatism will prevail, even if this resentment continues to bubble. Yeah, I think there's um, there's a there's a lesson here for for both sides, which is that as much as they want to bang the drum that the other isn't um, doing as good a job as it should do, or that they should have more of either. You know, the F1 wants even more regulatory power and the FIA wants more power, but also more money. They can complain about that all they want, but what they need to realise is that they need each other. And the best thing to do actually isn't to to take shots and poke holes in each other's arguments or anything like that. Actually, they, they need to... Some, it's almost annoying because you almost want there to be a third party that exists to just smack them both around the head and get them actually in a room talking because you often hear F1... And Stefano Domenicali indicating a certain whim from the F1 side. Ben Salem, even though he's less active on Twitter these days, uh, he is still capable of firing broadsides in the media. And there just seems to be an element of ego on both sides, which maybe comes across more overtly from Ben Salem because he speaks as himself so often, um, even if when he speaks on behalf of the FIA, it's still him talking, whereas Domenicali, I feel, picks and chooses his moments to speak, so you hear from him less. Like, there's ego on both sides. There's an entitlement on, on both sides. And even though I think F1 and, F and the FIA, by and large, act or think they're acting in the best interests of the championship, I don't really think their actions actually are in the best interests of the championship some of the time. And the longer this drags out, the more it has the potential to impact the next or the, well, I guess the current Concord negotiations for, for the new agreement. Um, and then longer term decisions, whether that's on the technical rules side, the sporting rules side, the, the length of the calendar, what we do with sprint races and stuff like this. It, it just becomes 
inherently messy. And if you do try to separate them, as I think Mark alluded to at one point, then there's so much to unpick there. I think you just end up with two colossally weakened entities that are trying to then create rival subpar products instead of just working together and making F1 as big and as best as it can be. And it's such a big problem that it infests everything now. There's some really big ticket things, which are things like the Concord discussions. The preliminaries of that have already started, but that's going to be a very long-term thing. You've got things like the Andretti entry, which is still a live issue. That's in in F1's court at the moment in terms of deciding whether they whether they want to approve it. But Every time something happens, this charges it. Like when they announced that the FI announced that they were going to potentially up the fines for uh, for transgressions last year and hadn't told anyone in advance. That was a relatively minor thing, but because teams hadn't been informed, it suddenly became a charged political issue. And that's when you know this thing is coming to more of a head or sort of ed- edging its way that way because it just touches absolutely everything, which is exactly really what you're saying, Scott. The two sides need to really be working together and stop all this nonsense because it's very easy for both sides to think that they're utterly in the right and the other side's terrible, but their job is to collaborate. That should be their number one objective. They need to collaborate, and the failure to do so is pretty bad for F1. And obviously, Mark, this is a long historic problem this tension is always there. It's just whether it's ratcheted up. And the last time that there was big tension the first decade of the 21st century you had the manufacturers breakaway and then later there was the the photo breakaway possibility that uh that really came to a head in 2009 so it's not a new thing but this form of it is kind of the latest chapter and it's at a point where it's where the, the intensity has risen massively above that just general baseline that it's always there yeah i think that's true and i think also the dynamics of this one are slightly different in that the teams aren't a third party as there had been in some previous um, of these sort of niggles where um, that, that they were each being courted by either um, the commercial rights holder or, or, or the FIA and, and the teams were sort of caught in the middle. On, in, on this occasion, they're not. The teams are very much aligned with Liberty. Um, and so the dynamics are slightly different. But yes, it is the same basic uh, underlying um, it's just a fault line within uh, the structure of the sport. Yeah, and this is why it's going to be such a big talking point over this year, probably for the next few years. I wouldn't be surprised. But I think for those who are outside of that particular political battle, really all they see is F1 as a whole, and they will expect to see these two sides, FIA and FOM, who are effectively they're, they're the custodians of, of F1 and its remarkable history, the, the World Championships. So their responsibility is to get it right and just sort of sitting back and constantly taking pot shots at the other and thinking they're in the right and everyone else is wrong is not a very helpful approach so those two sides need to find some common ground but I'm sure we're going to be talking about that plenty over the course of the year. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Well, Scott, let's now move on to the name of what is now officially called the Stake F1 team. That drew a lot of attention when that name was announced at the start of the month. Can you explain exactly what's going on with the name, especially given the Sauberon team will become Audi in 2026? Yeah, obviously seeing Sauber run in someone else's name is nothing new, given it's run under the Alfa Romeo name for the last few seasons. And when it previously had a different ownership obviously we knew it was BMW Sauber and and as expected there's an interim solution for the final two pre-Audi years because we know Audi doesn't want to rebrand the team before 2026 as Audi when it will be the majority shareholder and will have its own engine in the car for the new regulations so the Alpha deal's over and the team's decided not to return to the Sauber name which personally I think is a shame given it has real heritage and I think the importance of identity is underestimated sometimes in F1, especially when we are being encouraged to buy into the franchise model. And while, if you take it from a from its US inspiration, while it is possible for fran- new franchises to pop up in different places and franchises to relocate, it doesn't happen every other year. Um, and it's not one franchise that constantly gets rebranded or something like that. So if you're going to go down the sort of closed shop, these are the teams that compete in F1. I'd like identity to be a bit more consistent but this team is in a unique situation as it is awaiting that Audi transition so Sauber has sold its team and chassis naming rights for the next two seasons the team will be known as Stake F1 team um, except at the races where laws basically forbid such prominent gambling advertising so it will probably be called Kick F1 team there as its official entry last year did change from having stake in the name to kick in the name already in in 2023 um kick is another big sponsor which has also bought the chassis naming rights so the car will be called the kick salber c44 um and kick is a subsidiary of stake isn't it but it's a it's a streaming platform rather than a, a betting yes yes it has um common partners or stake owns kick or something like that um so for reference that all still appears on the fia fia entry list at the moment as stake f1 team kick salber there's not the cleanest combination you'll ever see. And a complete identity sale does tend to hint at a team in a bit of a need of funding, um, where whereby you know you need to cash in on the naming rights just to just to you know build the budget up. So that might make it look like Audi isn't taking this as seriously as seriously as it should be, for example. But I think really it just reflects the teams in this slightly strange pre-Audi limbo and wants to make the most of it because essentially it's all part of the same picture. It's all designed to support Sauber's interim seasons as it prepares for what's coming. And deals like this are important for funding all the improvements that are needed in facilities, personnel, car development. And these seasons, 24 and 25, are much more significant than just treading water until the first Audi year in 2026, especially when you consider the team took a backward step in 2023 so the rationale effectively is cash in on the opportunity pick an op- pick a partner you can try to do some different and fun things with and also improve the team in the meantime yeah which is understandable and logical they need to maximize the money they've got coming in because although audi is investing it's 
perhaps at a slower rate than is ideal to get that team to where it needs to be. James Key said in Abu Dhabi that he thought it would probably be 2027 before Sauber would be geared up fully to the, the extent which it needs to be. Mark, what do you make of the whole situation with uh, with stake, as we now call it? It's it's in a strange period because this, this run-up to Audi should be ideal, but there, there are doubts about whether it's making the absolute most of it, particularly the Audi side. Well, Audi is still a minority shareholder in the team, and it's still owned. Um, the majority of the share is, is still uh, Finn Routzing, the businessman who rescued it in the first place. So um, that the this, the percentage share of the the team Audi doesn't become um, the controlling. Uh, I'm, I'm avoiding saying the word stakeholder because it's confusing. Just say kickholder. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't become the majority shareholder in, until 26 when it officially enters. So obviously um, you're not going to invest your own money um, for long-term projects when you're just a short-term owner. And so the the big investments that could be being made now aren't being made because it's, it, Audi is not bought in fully yet, but it will, will be doing so. Um, and in the meantime, it's still operating as quite a small team. It didn't. It wasn't able to spend up to the budget cap last year. Didn't have a budget to to do that. So it wasn't spending as much as it's allowed to spend. Um, it's the some of some of the facilities there do need upgrading. Others are, are very good, uh, particularly the wind tunnel. So it's yeah, it's in this funny position. And uh, the next two years, hopefully that 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 sponsorship will enable it to. Um, sort of get get some of those things moving um before audi's actually uh officially in but it's a very curious position in that audi obviously wants to throw the kitchen sink at f1 it's obviously invested heavily in the engine program but it's it's acquired this team but they're almost reliant on that team that they're not fully owning yet to do some of the heavy lifting work because as you say there's some sides of the, the team that are quite well equipped and quite well set but they still need to do a lot more invest in their facilities they're, they need to grow significantly as well obviously that team had quite a tough time in the post bmw years it was actually teetering with uh, with oblivion at, at one stage before uh, finn rousing got involved so inevitably when you have that kind of period it takes a long time to to catch up with the expansion the other big teams uh, well the, the big teams have been doing Sauber very much not a uh, a big team so uh, so I guess Scott it it puts this team as you laid out it's in the, it's in a unique situation I can't think of a a time when a manufacturer has committed to a team and then due to this timeline of acquisition they're almost I mean they're, they're obviously involved they're leaving a lot to chance almost, aren't they, in terms of Sauber as an entity being able to do all this for the next few years to make sure the team's there. I know there's collaboration, but it's it just seems a little... It just worries me a little bit from the Audi side because if I was Audi, I'd be like, right, we want to hit this as hard as possible, as quickly as possible, because this investment is not the work of a moment and they've got the extra 20 million thanks to the CapEx changes that have been introduced that they can spend. So they need to be maximising it not just from now, but from when they first agreed the deal. Yeah, and I think for us on the outside, it certainly looks a little bit like the the idea for 2026 is to have kind of these individual um, pieces uh, that get sort of put together individually. So the engine gets done over here, 
then you improve the the Sauber facility in Switzerland over here, and then the race team is being improved over here. And then the theory is is that you put that all together in 2026, and it will all work absolutely fine. One it doesn't really work like that, and two, just because um, just because the engine is Audi's responsibility, quote unquote, for now, doesn't mean that Audi shouldn't be trying to improve. The, the factory, the technology, the workforce, the race team, the operations and, 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 and everything like that. And the way it works at the moment or the way through this sort of structured takeover of the team is that Audi is responsible for a certain degree of investment. But I, the impression I get and my understanding is, is that Salva's been ch- the Salva side has been chasing more investment than was originally agreed because more needs to be done. And I, I get the impression that Audi is open to that. It's just, it just takes a long time to put the wheels in motion when you've got to go through all the boards at, at Audi and VW to, to green light any, any extra funding. So I think there is more going on behind the scenes than, than, than we see and, and, and that we hear about because obviously there was that muzzling Alfa Romeo title sponsorship deal, wasn't there? Uh, that basically, uh, while that was going on, Sauber and Audi weren't communicating much about about the journey. I hope that changes this year because if there is more to this in terms of Audi's involvement, how seriously it's being taken, how sufficient the investment is and the way that they're going about things is, um, we need to see some evidence of it because the absence of that evidence, the absence of it being talked about combined with the on-track deterioration through 2023 and leadership changes within Audi and VW, that's what added up to all that speculation at the end of 2023 about whether Audi's going to go through with this, whether Audi's actually taking this as seriously as it needs to. It, I, I'd be amazed if Audi isn't, but there does need to be a little bit more outward evidence that it is. Yeah, and they're certainly trying to communicate things a little bit better. There are things happening there, but the the key is that a lot of teams are investing heavily because of the way Formula One's structured now with the way the the prize money's shared out with the the cost cap limitations. You really want to be at the maximum of what you can spend both on your operational budget and your capex in order to maximise the growth of the team. There's a big opportunity there, and that's why there's a bit of pressure there to get the absolute most out of it. But interesting to see how that develops over the course of the year. And as the team themselves have pointed out, while they finished ninth, the, the performance gap from the performance gap from Sauber to the front is not too bad. And if, if this year State can close that gap, which was around 1.5% on average last year on pace, then that means that small gains can be quite big competitive gains in terms of the order. Let's move on now to looking at a couple of the, the, the stories that we ran over Christmas and New Year. People have a lot of other things going on, so I might have missed some of our, our written content on the race website. But Mark, one of the most popular stories was your interview with Adrian Newey. Did that give you greater depth of understanding on the all-conquering RB19 and any hints about the direction of the Red Bull RB20? Uh, it allowed us to confirm a few theories about the RB19, uh, allowed us to understand more the thinking which led to some of the differentiating features of that car over the opposition and to an extent over the RB18. Uh, but uh, listening to Adrian is always an education. If, if you've worked stuff out and can ask the right questions, you'll get a level of insight he maybe wouldn't have provided had your questions been more general. Um, so sometimes about the car itself, but more often the more revealing answers are about his way of thinking and philosophies. And essentially, that was that. That is what's been behind the success of the last two Red Bulls. He, he realised before anyone else that the the Venturi regulations, which came in in twenty two, would demand a much closer, more intimate 
relationship between suspension and aerodynamics. Aero is still dominant, but it requires far more help from the suspension than before in accessing the downforce through all the range of operating conditions. And he, he had that right from the beginning of 22, and the team simply built upon that strong, correct foundation, if you like, and while the others were still finding their foundations faulty as, as they discovered the, 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 the hell of bouncing and porpoising, etc. So everyone else has been removing downforce to keep out of that ugly spot of bouncing while while Redbud was adding more. So hence, you know, they were even more dominant in 23. So yes, in the remaining two years of this formula, I'd, I'd, I'd expect the team to simply squeeze more from that basic platform, that basic rightness. Um, historically, Red Bull have always started off with a, you know, a concept at the beginning of a new formula and, and basically kept that and, and just sort of tweaked it as, as, as appropriate. Um, and I think that will happen for the, the run out of the, the last two years of this formula. Um, how that impacts upon their competitiveness, that, that's really in the hands of the others. Um, and he, Adrian, he's, 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 he has said he, he sees where the RB19 was weak and it, it really didn't respond well when the, um, the, the, the plank became an issue with bumpy tracks like Singapore. And we saw a ghost of that in Spa and Austin too. So it, it can generally, on smoother tracks, run lower than the others without getting into the bouncing hell. But when that becomes um, so low that the plank wear becomes an issue, then it, they have to lift it a little bit and it doesn't. It sort of falls off quite a lot um, in its um, downforce delivery when you, when you have to do that. Um, so there's probably going to be an emphasis on making it even more adaptable, I would think, but I'm not expecting anything radically different. I'm not expecting to see a Red Bull that looks totally unlike the, the, the previous two. It would be brilliant, wouldn't it, if uh, the Red Bull RB20 is unveiled and it doesn't have side pods. <laughs> if Adrian's yeah. just gone, ah, oh, do you know what? We can make this work um, because the platform's <laughs> so good. Um, no, I, 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 because Adrian speaks so rarely and... Um, he's spanned so many different eras of of f1 car and he has obviously this deserved reputation as this just masterful designer but also just fascinating individual beyond the oh look at him he's designed a bunch of great f1 cars there's obviously so much there that is of interest you there are, it, it doesn't matter how detailed he has been in past interviews or you know his his own wonderful book for for example, there are just always little things that get thrown up, even in a new context, or he frames it in a slightly different way. So naturally, that was the same with the um, the, the the interview that, that that you did, Mark. And there, there, there are plenty of little snippets. I, I quite enjoyed him loosely comparing it to the advantages they had in 2010, for example, which I imagine wouldn't... If you were going to pick a couple of old Red Bull years to compare 23 to, it'd probably be 11 or 13. Um but he was obviously uh, he obviously picked that one out, and I, I I particularly liked the I think the way you phrased it there about um, the sort of thought processes the the what the way he thinks about things and what then why that then leads to what we saw rather than necessarily just a bland explanation of how this thing worked technically. It's more about the man himself, and I think the bit that stood out for me there was when he was talking about the um, the Rosberg Fittipaldi test in uh, in in the nineteen eighties. And um, because I think he described it, I, I might badly misquote him here, but he described it as that that was 
the moment he realized that you had to look at it holistically and it wasn't just you know bouncing is not just a function of aerodynamics it, it is that that bigger picture thing and considering everything we've heard over the last sort of two years about when people discovered this for the first time and how far behind they were and there was always this really lazy kind of social media thing with Adrian where it was just like, ah, yeah, but knew he was there in the 1980s. He's done ground effect before. And it's just such an oversimplistic way of dealing with it. But then you hear, or in this case, read him describing it in quite a tangible way, almost like you can put yourself in Adrian's position almost in the early 80s and and he describes it so well, you know, seeing the car come past, bouncing, almost like air under the tyres, that's how much it was and it's almost like he's describing his light bulb moment that then effectively feeds into his decision making 40 years later i just found that so fascinating i think it illustrates the strength as well because i've said this before in terms of how good he is at when there's a new set of regulations looking at how the competitive dials all change and thinking all right we need to do a bit more this bit more focus on this this is a bit less important and another way to look at that is also being creative enough to kind of let go of the prevailing assumptions because as mark you alluded to almost the suspension had become less and less significant shall we say it was all about keeping it out of the way yes you needed it to work kinematically the way you wanted it but it, it, it had become a smaller percentage of the competitive equation but then suddenly with these rules it interacts with the overpowering performance element which is the aerodynamics and knew he's almost able to kind of walk that walk back some of those assumptions whereas some others carry them over and it, it sounds very simple and obvious but it is difficult to do because there are foundational assumptions in terms of how you go about tackling a car and it, it's actually quite difficult if you throw them all out and try and rebuild them again and I guess that underlines his uh, his creative thinking doesn't it and that that tells you what the strength of of New is and the strength of that team that they can then actually feed that in because he doesn't sit there and design the whole car yeah that's right and I think partly it's it's that open-mindedness of an inquisitive mind that um can decouple what has become a convention and question it and think why is that a convention does that does that still have to be a convention rather than just making the assumption that well this is how it's always been so we can do it this way and i think that's um because he's uh, an original thinker and also because he's sort of he's a little bit out of the loop he's allowed to be creative in the way that they've structured that team they've got you know a very very strong technical department even without him and so he can he can sort of have these light bulb moments and feed in and say, "Oh, hang on, have we looked at this?" and 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 send send those people and resources off in a very interesting direction, which might sometimes lead to something, it might other times not. But um, in a situation like this, where the the fundamentals had to be reassessed, that's where that's yeah, that's where he really comes into his own. Almost being in a position to see the wood from the trees, I guess, is a way of, of, of characterising it. But certainly it's worked very well. Another piece, also Red Bull related, that ran recently, Scott, was your big interview with Triple World Champion Max Verstappen. What did you learn from that? Uh, well, I was going to quickly pick something that didn't make the final cut. Uh, and it was a little bit more lighthearted. But off the back of a brief discussion about Adrian Newey and Mark getting an amazing interview with him, I feel like that would make me look like even more of an idiot compared to Mark. So I should probably pile straight into something a little bit more serious, which is that, um, so the vibe of the Max interview, it wasn't just a reflection of 2023 and what went well and how he got on top of the 
elements of the the car that he did struggle with a little bit more in the first part of the season although that was that was part of the interview it was loosely what motivates him what gives him joy in racing and driving in in general and a bit of a hint at what that means for his future because in the context of how he actively advertises his intention to walk away from F1 at some point I felt that that was a good avenue to go down with with Max and it was interesting to hear how flat out he was about quitting if he feels he can't or won't be at 100% of his capacity but that felt to me a bit like expanding on something he already touched on before so if I were to pick a specific thing that stood out for me it's his uh, admissions probably the right word it's not quite serious enough for that but his claim that he likes he prefers Sunday and the race to, to qualifying um, and you hear so many drivers talk about how qualifying's the pinnacle, like that's the peak of the weekend for them because the car's obviously a lot lighter than it is when you do a race start and through the Grand Prix, um, you've got the softest tyres on, you put everything on the line and it's this proper performance crescendo, that's the high point of the weekend in terms of driving the car, but Max doesn't see it that way for, and he is, as we know, uncompromisingly competitive his favourite thing about racing is beating people. And a lot of drivers think that they love to win, but Max really loves to win. And he prefers the races because he reckons that anyone on the grid can do a quick lap, but doing the best job over a Grand Prix is a bigger challenge. And I think it's a good example of what makes him tick and also why F1 is such a good fit for someone of Max's intensity while it gives him what he wants from it. Because returning to the overall theme of that piece... You can see why what drives him will eventually make him walk away. Because if you're that way inclined, then the moment you feel you can't be competitive or you can't be at your best, you're not getting what you need or you can't give 100%, I think that's the moment you need to stop because you're not getting out of it what you need to to make it worthwhile. I, I just can't see Max being a driver that settles around uh, settles for hanging around in the midfield just to extend his career or pick up a payday. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I still have the suspicion his perspective might change as he gets closer to that end of contract time where there's suggestions he, he may retire, but that's something that, that the future will uh, will decide. But it's interesting what you summed up there about the the ability to kind of draw all those factors together in order to deploy the performance when it really matters. I guess, Mark, that is something that's, all, that's always been a strength of Verstappen because you think back to his first season, Right away, quite often with with mega rookie drivers, their pace, their single lap pace is the first thing that really grabs the attention and then the race is gradually come. But actually, Verstappen was a little bit the other way around. His qualifying was good, but his race performances right from the start could be of a very high quality and he did a lot of work in terms of understanding the tyre performance and that kind of thing that really laid the foundations for it. So it does underline how Verstappen isn't just a very, very good example of a a typical Grand Prix driver, but something a little bit different in his outlook. I guess that's always been there, hasn't it? Yeah, I think he would have he would have shone in um, whichever era of Formula uh, One that we've we've seen. But I think he would have been particularly good um, in the in the tire war age when you had to be relentless, relentlessly pushing flat out throughout a stint. I think he would have been fantastic at that. I think he would probably have shown even more brightly in his rookie season than he than he did had we had that sort of um, style of racing then. But, he, you know, he, he adapts to whatever's required and um, he's just a, he just delivers performance, doesn't he? But, uh, absolute um, 
machine in terms of what he not not just his his raw speed which is formidable but um his constant delivery and the, the way he's pushing against um any limitations um all the time and i think uh, it's just that's just how he is that's just um how he's it's partly dna it's partly the way um it's been instilled in him by his father um there isn't really a weakness to him now and i think um he'll go on as long as it keeps as long as the satisfaction is greater than the frustration and the frustrations are all around the, the stuff that drivers are usually frustrated by which is the the corporate stuff the the media stuff the, all, all the peripheral things um, and that does frustrate him, and you can see that it frustrates him sometimes. And you can see when he gets asked a stupid question, how he has to sort of quite often compose himself first before answering it. And you can see he's pulling himself back from being dismissive. Um, that all just takes energy from you. And over the years, it's, it, it will be that that sort of take that energy away from you enough that you might think. I want to stop now and it's just it's just that equation it's the satisfaction of performing on one side and the the, the energy cost of of doing it on the other and of course that energy cost has increased gradually as the calendar has expanded he's been pushing back on that and you have yeah more and more races <laughs> turning up so that that feeds into it as well and that's something f1 needs to think about because if a prize asset driver is potentially going to walk away much earlier than they otherwise would have done because of that then you know they need to think a little bit about whether more is always better because that seems to be the main trick f1 does in terms of its growth at the moment so need to have a serious think about that as you've probably heard by now we've teamed up with betmgm this season we'll be using betmgm lines to make all of our picks and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week if you haven't signed up for betmgm yet use bonus code the athletic and you'll get a one-year subscription to the athletic plus up to a fifteen hundred dollar first bet offer on your first wager with betmgm here's how it works Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. 
Well, Mark, let's move on now to some terrible news at the end of last month. The death of Gilles de Ferran at the age of just 56. He never raced an F1, but he was sporting director for Honda from 2005 to 2007. More recently, he was part of the McLaren setup. You knew him going way back to his junior single-seater day. So how big a loss is he? Yeah, even if you, even as you just said those words there, the, the death of Gilles de Ferran, it, it clashed horribly because it can't seem real because Gilles de Ferran is only... In his fifties, and it's yeah, that's just what a shock it was. He he wasn't a household name to recent F one fans, perhaps, but as a driver, he was a legend in IndyCar from the early two thousands. Double champion for Penske, of course, winner of the two thousand and three Indy five hundred. So it's always sad when we lose a great champion, but when the guy's only in his fifties and it comes out of the blue like that, it's it's a horrible shock and especially tragic. And he was loved by pretty much everyone who knew him. He's just one of those rare guys whose essence shone through. He was an essence of a warmth of spirit, a generosity of spirit. I don't think I've ever known someone with that combination of warmth with the intensity of competitive spirit that all the best racers have. Um, he loved what he did, but it was a competition with himself, I think. And then once once he'd achieved what he wanted to achieve as a driver, he's quite happy to switch the race driving off. And as a as a racer, he could step it up when the occasion demanded. He would, he, he could go up another gear, and he was quite measured in what he allowed himself to do. But he w- he would allow himself to go all the way when it was needed, like that last lap pass on Kenny Brack at Rockingham, two thousand and one. Uh, yeah, I was I was sat in the grandstand just in front, uh, just there, uh, well, just behind that, I guess. Yeah, fantastic. And that that trait was apparent even in his F three days when I first got to know him. Um, and he was he was a thinking driver out of the car, and he he was a thinking man with a lot of depth and intellect brought a bear on being successful and he just loved that whole process the whole process of racing of making the car better of getting the most from himself um had an engineering background so he he, he really sort of got down in the very fabric of, of what it took um but he loved life out of the car too so you'd you'd see that frown in repose and you just knew that the gears were grinding away as he was thinking about something but then as soon as he saw you there'd be that big beaming smile on that you know great big face that he had it was um it was a sincere way it was it wasn't it wasn't a payoff front he was interested he wanted to interact and if you had good questions all the better because it gave him the chance to think deeper and you, you always learned something in any conversation with him and you can see why mclaren saw him as a great interface between drivers and engineers not not just between drivers and engineers but between all the people within a team really because that natural warmth got to everyone and his stature as a driver and his 360-degree immersion in all aspects of racing, it was such that his suggestions and analysis carried a lot of weight, and he would just make the whole thing meld and run smoother. He'd just sort of lubricate the whole process. Um, and the professional and the personal were the same guy with Gilles. That's what really so, so stood out about him. Um, he was a special man, and I treasure the time I did spend with him over the years. It would have been... Um, it would have been amazing to have had a bigger glimpse of that personality and character in that, um, I guess, the second time in, in F1, the McLaren role, because that's the only time I really um, got to see him where, compared to, obviously, as um, Mark has explained, or, you know, I wasn't in the grandstand at Rockingham with Ed, <laughs> for, for example. Um, and I always felt that, the one one thing that the one thing that did come across massively when 
when he was um, he was in that McLaren position was he would occasionally do media sessions on the you know when the McLaren have the meet the team thing on the Saturday after qualifying in particular and I one thing I one thing I can say with complete sincerity is that his earnestness and warmth in answering a question I think as Mark said a sensible question especially um, was apparent regardless of whether he knew you whether he knew who it was that was asking the question because as I had, I I had he had no idea who I was I had nothing to do with him before coming into Formula One in that position in that time when he had the McLaren position but there was nothing about him that he 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 wasn't the kind of person who who spoke to different people in different ways do you know what i mean like he it was just like he gave you the time of day and more and the only the only regret i have of dealing with him through that mclaren stint was that I never i never really felt like he was um fully fully involved enough or responsible enough for certain aspects to be able to talk about things perhaps as openly as he wanted because there was a there was a reserved element there was, there was almost reservation about the way he would talk about certain elements of the F1 team and what was changing because probably because he just didn't feel that it was his place to 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 comment on it and it's um when when that's your only uh interaction with someone in this position obviously like it just meant i saw i didn't see him as open in the ways that so many like some of the tributes i've seen to him in the last few days have been extraordinary um i I would say he is one of the uh, of the people that the motorsport world has sadly lost in recent years. I am struggling to think of someone f- f- who has triggered such widespread warmth as as as, as him. It's, it's universal, not just respect, but just pure affection. I didn't professionally run into him until I was at Indy in 2017. I went there to to cover the full two weeks of the 500. And he was Fernando Alonso's driver coach, basically, for Alonso's first assault on Indy, the one where he, he led laps and would have been in the conversation for winning had the Honda engine not gone pop relatively late on. And and you could see the uh, the depth of thought and insightfulness he, he had there. So that was very interesting to get a bit of a feel for what he was about then but it's interesting mark isn't it because obviously he's always talked of as a driver who could have done very well in f1 and i'm sure he would have done with his intelligence etc he had a brief williams test which i think was an f3 prize test wasn't it then a, a proper test for footwork which was a similar time to when uh well the same test i think when Mac, uh, when jos verstappen had his famous footwork test but de Ferran, um hit his head on something didn't he like a locker or something and had to have stitches yeah. so he, he wasn't at his best and he wasn't as quick as he, he would have been so uh there was some some talk about after he'd made a good impression early on in his cart days that he could could come back but but it's funny isn't it it's like he, while he was a loss to f1 as a driver it would have been difficult to have had a career as great as the one he did have with the two cart titles the indy 500 obviously he came out of retirement to to be a regular race winner in the american Le Mans series with his own team as well so uh, you almost feel like, although F1 probably didn't see that, well, certainly didn't see him as a driver and didn't see the best of him in a more management role that he that he could have uh, offered somehow. You, you don't feel it was a great loss. He didn't race in F1 because of what he did go on to achieve in the USA. Yeah, he had a fantastic career over there and and, and made a fantastic life for himself over there with him and his family in Florida. So um, yeah, I, I don't think if you'd asked him afterwards, do you want to? 
trade that for the possibility of a different um, type of success in Formula One, I don't think he would have uh, taken it really. Um, he, he would have been a, a good F1 driver, would have been a, probably a top F1 driver, but you know, what sort of career he would have had would have all depended upon you know which cars he got his bum into, and uh, you can just as easily you can be be you know in in a get get lost in a, a midfield team forever and you, you, your stature comes down and and you know, you never get the chance so um at least he got it, he got in the um the top cars and the, the you know the the machinery that his talent warranted um over in uh, indica yeah and certainly i think everybody's universal in agreeing a, a great loss to uh well to, to not just the world of motorsport but the the wider world as well now scott let's finish off with taking a bit of a look ahead to launch season we're about a month away from the cars starting to appear and then of course the pre-season test in bahrain kicks off on february the 21st what have you got marked down in the diary so far as the dates come in Yes, yeah, so first date in the diary as we record this is Williams's season launch on February the 5th and Stakes uh, launch on the same day. Given that's a week earlier than I think we, we saw Williams last year and given what most others seem to be planning, I'd be surprised if we see real cars there, maybe show cars and some renders. Um, but Williams did go from a digital event into a physical shakedown last year, so perhaps it has got everything together and the, the the regulation stability means that that they do have something ready for us to see on february the 5th the same will go for for stake that it's quite annoying that that's on the same day in a way just because it just means more work and a bit less attention for for each team but we have the newly rebranded stake f1 team showing its car off with i think what's going to be an event in the uk and my big working theory and this is purely an, an, an assumption is that they're going to try to work in some other stake ambassadors and partners and maybe they'll launch the the car at goodison park everton football club's ground because they have stake and kick all over their over their shirt i'd, I'd, I'd be up for that a bit of a football crossover but again would be surprised if there's a real thing on display uh, but at the very least, I would hope for some faithful renders from these earlier launches. I'm a bit more confident about seeing real cars at the other two launches we know about. They're a week later, Aston Martin at Silverstone on February the 12th and Ferrari over in Maranello on February the 13th. That week could provide the real meat of launch season, but testing is only a week later in Bahrain, so teams will be up against it time-wise if they want to show a real car. So with that in mind, I do foresee a few predictable digital-only endeavours and maybe the the real thing will only be seen in the pit lane at the test, as you say, it starts on February 21st. And it's always a very intense period now. It's amazing, really, how much it's changed that pre because pre-season, by which I'll mean both testing and the launches, tends to be much more disparate. And it, it's almost become, well, testing's almost become another Grand Prix weekend and, and the launches are now so sort of condensed that, they become a flurry of their own, if you, if you like. So it's it's amazing how much that's that's changed. I, I always think actually the time when preseason really changed in F one was in was in twenty ten, uh, which is at the point where you you had testing had become very tightly controlled. So everyone was doing the same test. Twenty ten was the first year where it was basically right. You will do these tests, and Valencia was the first one, and it was the first day was hugely attended because you had Alonso in a Ferrari, Michael Schumacher back in a Mercedes, lots of big driver changes that year, and it just became a huge event, and it's kind of built up from uh, from there. What do you make of how things have changed so much, Mark, in terms of all the launches? Obviously, the launches were always a focus, but it was much more disparate, wasn't it? They, they were, it were. Their own little islands rather than this yeah. big flurry. 
Yeah, and also the, the the testing that you talked about. You know, everybody was was testing into all all the different places, and um, you know, McLaren would set a certain time at Valencia on one day, and then Ferrari would be there two days later, and it was a quicker time. But did, was was the circuit quicker? Was it slower? You know, we didn't we didn't know anything really. Um, so it was very, very, it was much easier to analyze now. Um, even though there's still a lot of variables, obviously when you were looking at winter testing form, it is at least all the cars are running on the same track and on the same day. Um, so that it, I don't know whether that's good or bad. I, I don't know whether it's better to have a little bit of a, a sense of, um, what on earth's going to happen at the first race is, is better. Yeah. I, I, yeah. That, that's up to the individual, but, um, yeah, it's just different. Um, uh, it's, um, I think, you know, li livery launches are a bit of a, uh, sort of lame, <laughs> lame way of, uh, you know, announcing it. I don't think you should be announcing a livery. You should just be seeing the livery on the new car really, but you know, it's just, that's just how marketing works, I guess. But uh, yeah, it's just different. I mind it less when the livery is actually different, substantially different. We know stake's going to be quite a bit different, obviously, because Alfa Romeo's gone. Supposedly, it's going to be a more extreme change than just removing all the Alpha stuff, and it'll be something quite different to, to what that team's had historically. But you never know, because sometimes liveries are touted as being very, very different. Then you look at them, you think, oh, that's that's uh, that's very, very similar. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of, uh, of livery launches, and I'm particularly not a huge fan of when uh, teams are unclear about what they're showing, which uh, sometimes they have a habit of doing when it comes to launches. But it's also always a fascinating time. The great thing, though, is, Scott, isn't it? Because particularly for, for fans, it's a time when everything's possible isn't it you can you can dream if you're a big fan of a, a midfield team or driver that something special could happen and I guess it's it's the point where you start to gather a little bit of information about the season ahead but it's so tenuous and uh and vague that it's still in that realm of literally anything can happen yeah it is um it's the part of the season where everyone obviously has a different degrees of realism in their expectations but everyone is starting the season with broadly the same kind of optimism aren't they you have no idea where you stand you all think you've had a a really good uh, winter and from a fan point of view you're obviously wrapped up in that from a team point, point team or driver perspective if you're a fan of a particular team or driver but also just I, I I totally get Mark's point about like the liveries themselves like they they almost shouldn't be notable in a way but as someone who's been a, a, an F, a motorsport fan but also a football fan for as long as I can remember uh, I, I don't know why I've always cared about seeing my football team's new kit for the start of the season but I do and it's a bit stupid but I quite like it um, and I always do, get do a you look at it and think wow it's red like a Ferrari fan I yes I do um, a, a little bit I always, and then my next one is just like how's that nearly 50 quid um, because such as uh, such as times changed uh, but but it's just it's just excitement isn't it we all we all come out of hibernation to to a degree um, everything gets a bit more serious everything feels a bit more real there's there is just excitement and optimism there is nothing like the start of a new season and that is what launch season sort of feeds into but I agree I I, I think the focus should absolutely be on on the cars and the, the 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 real tangible, meaningful stuff, and it's frustrating sometimes. As I think we went into detail about this last year, so many misleading season launches and um, supposed car launches that weren't actual car launches. I, I like it. 
I'd like us to. I'd prefer it if launch season went a little bit back to basics. If it meant that we got the the the, the real stuff rather than just uh, a bit more style over substance. Yeah, and the interesting thing is, if you peel back all that, you do get some interesting little threads that start because teams do say things about their cars. I'm thinking last year, remember Alpine talked in great detail about the rear suspension changes they've made. Then when he get, gets to testing, it turned out they weren't completely on top of the setup implications and that kind of thing. So it, it does plant some seeds. Obviously, McLaren massively talked down their chances. And then, of course, that fed into starting to talk about, well, there'll be an Azerbaijan upgrade and then we're hopeful later in the year things will go well. And that came to pass. And other teams talk about where they're trying to make gains and sometimes they don't make the gains in that area. So that sort of seeds some of the storylines. And I think if you actually look closely at what's said, particularly from some of the technical people, it's not just optimism about the season and the same old. There there are nuggets of detail in there, which we at the race always try and seize on and tease out of it. We'll do lots of podcasts and written stuff and videos and everything to really dig into that. But there are things to be learned. Sometimes you see people being very dismissive of the launches and some of it is of no use. But there are nuggets of information. It is the storyline of the season starting to be formed in the most fragmented and watered-down form. But there are things that you learn. So that's that's why they, they matter, as well as just the general excitement surrounding it. And, of course, we will be at all the launches, the ones that are physical, and we will be eagerly absorbing any of the digital launches as well to give you all the detail. We'll have Gary Anderson looking at the cars as well. So lots of depth we shall get into before heading off to... Uh, Bahrain for February the 21st. Well, thanks very much to Mark and Scott for your insight. Head to the race.com. Don't forget the hyphen. Loads to read there, even during January. Check out our other podcasts, including Bring Back V10. Season 9 of that is already up and running. We've taken on the 1989 Japanese Grand Prix and the infamous collision between Prost and Senna for the first episode of that. Also, we've got IndyCar Podcast, MotoGP, Formula E, and the Race F1 Tech Show with the legend that is Gary Anderson. And take a look at our YouTube channel as well for long and short-form videos. Well, thanks for joining us. Stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of F1 in 2024. The Athletic.